Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. This is the fourth in a series in the Living Leadership Podcast in which we're considering leadership lessons from John the Baptist. In the last episode, we saw how Jesus, who baptises with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is mightier than us, and we are unworthy to be the lowest of his servants. Yet he invites us to serve him in response to his grace. And the only response we can make is to keep low and let people see him. Let's hear again from scripture as we begin this episode, which is entitled Given from Heaven. I'm reading from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 27. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptising. John also was baptising at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptised, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptising, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Why do some pastors rise to prominence and others remain unknown? What makes the difference between a success and a flop in ministry? Why do some ministers' names end up in lights and immortalised on Wikipedia, while others will only be written on headstones to be ground to dust over time by the elements? Why do the social media accounts of some Christian leaders have millions of followers and likes, while others are followed only by the owner's mother and her best friend? Well, we're inclined to think that success and recognition result from a person's qualities and efforts. Maybe they were more creative or inventive and their ideas outstripped those of others. Or maybe they worked harder and sacrificed more than others. Or perhaps they had greater charisma to inspire and influence more people. Or we might think it's just that they had a better start in life drawing on family wealth or opportunities and connections that others didn't have. After all, we've all met people who were just as gifted as someone who became famous, but who never made the big time. Now, though we think in terms of people's giftedness or their circumstances, we tend to think that human factors explain why some people get ahead of others. And I'm sure there's some truth in that, At least if we measure success by what is visible with human eyes and impressive to human minds. There are systems and structures in this world, even in the world of Christian ministry, that favour some people and ignore others. Who you know often matters more than what you know, and greasing the right palms can help you climb the greasy pole. It ought not to be so, but it is. John the Baptist, though, 
comes as a voice again from the wilderness, coming from left field. He calls us to step back from our despair at this situation and to see things differently. John was a sensation. He was, for a time, Israel's number one preacher, the most exciting sideshow in town. He drew crowds, proof of his gifting. He upset the authorities, a sure sign of genius. He was charismatic and by all human measures successful in his chosen field. Today we would call him an influencer. We might look askance at his methods but feel jealous at their results. If only we had come up with the idea first. And just as internet algorithms catapult innovators to the top of search engines, the societal algorithms of first century Israel thrust John into the limelight. Until that is, a rival preacher appeared on the scene. And as hits on the newcomers' pages rose, traffic to John's site declined. This newcomer stole John's modus operandi, getting his own disciples to baptise people. And he stole John's best lines, speaking of the kingdom of God. He wasn't as innovative as John, at least initially, but his charisma was greater. He, he didn't immediately catch the attention like the wild-haired, camel-clad baptizer. But what he lacked in appearance, he made up for in other ways. His teaching and authority that made even John's feel like a shadow of reality. And there were rumours that he had a product that John's store didn't stock. Miracles of healing and exorcism. When faced with a rival, most people clamour to justify their jealousy and excuse their envy. They highlight the rival's flaws and question his motives. They damn him with faint praise. They find a thousand reasons not to include him on the billing. They hope to starve the person of the oxygen of publicity or the food of opportunity. And this happens to less impressive rivals, but it is even more intense when the newcomer is more gifted. Inability to praise another person whose work is good and failure to try and learn from them or cooperate with them whenever possible, despite even when we share their theological convictions, if we don't serve with them or seek to do so, these are sure signs of pride. And that's how it is with sinful human nature that does not know the grace of God, but not so with John. This preacher of repentance knew the deceptiveness of the human heart. This one who was set apart from before his birth was separated not only from the success pathways of his day, but from the values that fueled them. John didn't seek the limelight. He didn't pursue followers. He didn't promote himself. These things weren't grasped by him, but given to him. He simply did what God called him to do and left the results to God. And he knew the truth that we seldom like to acknowledge, that any influence is only for a time and for a purpose. When God lifts us up, it's at the right time and for the right purpose. When he keeps us up, it's for the right period. When he takes us down again, it's at the right time and for a good purpose too. And we get this insight into John's attitude in his response to the kind of thing that happens on Twitter every day. The debate that's not really a debate. People talking past each other, 
not acknowledging the real motivations for their mutual hostility. It looks like a debate superficially because there's an argument about ideas, but it's not really a debate because it never reaches a conclusion. And that's because no one is interested in changing their mind. Heaps of heat, but little light. And that's what happened with John's disciples. An unnamed Jew started a dispute with them about purification. The account in John's Gospel doesn't give us much detail, but we know it spooked John's disciples, so we can assume that the discussion wasn't entirely amicable. Presumably the disputing Jew wondered what exactly John meant by his practice of baptism and how it related to Jewish ideas about ritual cleansing. Probably there was an implied or perhaps an explicit suspicion about John's authority to baptise. Certainly we know from Jesus' question to the Pharisees sometime later that they had questions about John's right to baptise, although they were wary about going public with them. Mark 11, 27 to 33 shows us that. Now, as so often happens, as the non-debate proceeded, the two sides found common ground in suspicion of someone else. Just as an unholy coalition of Herodians, Pharisees and Sadducees came together later to dispose of Jesus, John's followers agreed with their questioner that the activities of Jesus and his disciples were suspect. The message of this other baptizer, or at least Jesus didn't baptize, but his disciples did, but it seemed even more radical than John's. So the two sides laid their dispute to rest and John's disciples, possibly accompanied by their erstwhile enemy, the disputing Jew, came to express their concern to John that Jesus was gathering a crowd greater than his. There's more than a little irony in their words. They acknowledged that John had borne witness to Jesus, but they hadn't expected things to turn out this way. The mass turning of disciples from John to Jesus was unforeseen by them. Perhaps they thought Jesus would become a follower of John or that the two men would work in close partnership or that they would divide and conquer with John retaining a large band of disciples while Jesus recruited a different class of person or operated in another region. John could have Judea, Jesus could have Galilee, something like that. But what happened instead was that Jesus ministered not far away from John, and his effectiveness was enhanced by the band of twelve that he'd gathered as his pupils. John's crowd was drawn away to Jesus. His star was waning as Jesus' sun was rising. And surely that wasn't what John had expected or what God intended, so thought John's disciples. John's response is, for me at least, one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. Here's what he said. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Stop and consider what that means. In the immediate context, it refers to the status John had held. That was simply a gift from heaven for a time. God gave it and God could take it away. John knew it had never truly been his. Now, once you board this train of thought, there's no stopping. When John acknowledged his success as a gift for a season, he was also saying that everything that made it possible was God's gift. His start in life 
with supportive parents and a priestly family. His education in the schools of Judea, steeped in the word of God, his strength of character and personal magnetism. The insects, whose bodies and honey gave him sustenance, the as yet unknown mechanisms by which his body digested and utilised their energy, the water he drank, the air he breathed, the rays of sun that warmed his skin, all gifts from his creator and Lord for a season, all for a time and all for a purpose. And that purpose was to prepare the way for another, to hold lightly what was given to him until the time came, as it now had, to hand it back to the one to whom it truly belonged. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that people have nothing to do with the limits of our visible success. John's ministry was cut short by the sword that severed his neck. The hint is in the passage, John was not yet in prison. Herod Antipas was responsible for cutting John's ministry short. King though he was, supported by the Roman superpower, what Herod had, of course, was received from God as well, power for a time. But Herod missed its purpose and directed it to his own ends. And we can do the same and it can limit others in their impact for God's kingdom, at least in the short term and by visible measures. Woe betide those whose pursuit of glory and fame keeps others from doing what they might have done for God with the gifts he gave them. How tragic when someone does not give space or platform to the more gifted or better suited person because they sought the limelight themselves. God will be their judge in the great turning of the tables when everything is revealed for what it truly is. As we saw in the last episode, a lot of ministry will be burned up on that day, wood, hay and straw. But here's the point. In the kingdom, success is not what it is in the world. You can't measure faithfulness by what is seen. God's glory will not be revealed visibly until the end of days, and only then will we see what came from what was done before that day. The question then won't be what fame we gained in this life, but whether we invested what was entrusted to us in every opportunity we were given. And the only review of our lives, the only comment on our spiritual Twitter feed that will matter in the eternal scheme of things is this, well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25 verse 21. John's words are testimony to his belief that God is in control. God gives and he takes away. God lifts up and he brings down. God works always for his glory in the person of Jesus Christ, to whom John willingly gave way. And of course, this is the story of every life. Naked we enter the world and naked we will depart from it, as Ecclesiastes tells us. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out, to quote 1 Timothy 6 verse 7. We all receive and we all return it. Sometimes we give back what was given, battered and broken because we took it and squeezed it to fit into the space we wanted to occupy. Sometimes we pay it back with interest because we invested it for God's glory. Most often, It gets back to the giver, not from our hands, but indirectly, 
as he retrieves its broken pieces scattered to the winds. We receive, but only for a time. We don't make ourselves or our circumstances. We're simply stewards of whatever God has chosen to entrust to us, given for a time and given for a purpose. And that purpose is always the same, even though the gifts are diverse. It's to give the glory, as John gladly did, to the only one who deserves it, God's chosen one and Lamb, the Lord Jesus. To serve him by serving others in his name and telling them about him. Don't be fooled by any talk of other mission statements. They proliferate around the worlds of church and mission, but they're not worth the screens they're projected on if they're not only and simply rewordings of the one purpose we have been given, to make disciples of, you've got it, not yourself, not your church, not your organisation, but of Jesus Christ. It's one of the great tragedies of the contemporary church and the edifices of the wider Christian culture that surround it, that the measure of success so often looks just like that in the world. Numbers of followers, hits and likes, sizes of crowds and sales of books, And of course, our hearts are full of deceit, aren't they? We face the temptation too in ourselves to measure our success and significance in the world's terms. Let's never think that these things make for success in God's eternal kingdom. What matters in his economy is not how many people heard you, but how much you helped the words of Jesus to be heard in the space that you were given. Not how many likes you got, but how like Jesus you look. Not how many remember your name, but how much glory accrues to his. You might have to take the limelight at times in order to have that effect, but step into it with fear and trembling and make sure that when you step out of it, people remember Jesus more than you. Make that the theme of your preaching. Better still, if you can seize the controls of the spotlight and direct it to the only one who should ever really be its focus. But whether you feel you have big opportunities or not, learn from John not to envy what others have been given. That dynamic pervades every human system, including Christian subcultures, mutual back-scratching and people-praising contexts that are a million miles from the simplicity of Christ, boasting of accomplishments and positions, failure to plan for succession and hand over to others, or even to share opportunities with other gifted people of good character. In my years of Christian service, I've met perishingly few people who intentionally and habitually open up spaces and opportunities for others. And I'm thankful that I can think of two as I write. I suspect that it's two more than many people could list. All of these issues are evidence of a lack of understanding of the principle that John espoused. And the problem is especially prevalent when ministries are driven by a pursuit of growth that needs ever larger donations, or when pastors become people pleasers. In such cases, it's in nobody's interest to offend anyone and the word of God gets distorted. It results in people being excluded and sidelined through no fault of their own. 
It impoverishes the church, it dishonors the Lord, and it taints our testimony to a kingdom of radically different values. In the final analysis, envy is the antithesis of trust. Our issue when we allow envy to motivate our choices and words is not really with the other person, but with our Creator and Lord. Because no one can receive anything except what is given from heaven. Now, if you've known any of these struggles, as I suspect we all have, either because you've been tempted in these ways, you've given in to that temptation, or because the way it functions and you've seen it in others has discouraged you, then hear the Lord Jesus saying to you words that he once said to Simon Peter by the shores of Galilee, when Peter looked green-eyed at another disciple. It's familiar from John 21, verse 22. Jesus said, if it is my will that he, you can fill in this blank with whatever you end, What is that to you? You follow me. Let's pray. Sovereign God, our living Father, forgive us the sins of jealousy and envy and the root of pride from which they flow. Free us to give praise to others when they do a good job. Loosen our tongues to praise you for the abilities and opportunities you gave them. Release us from the slavery of self to partner with those who love you too. Allay our concerns that we might lose prominence. Enable us to give away opportunities when we know someone else will do it better than we can. Or we need to develop others up or hand over to someone younger or more capable. Empower us to equip others who can take our place when our race is complete. And in these things, make us like John the Apostle as we hear our Lord say, What is that to you? You follow me. Give us a renewed vision to make disciples of Jesus. May we live for the commendation of good and faithful servants. May we remember that success in your kingdom is not measured in numbers, but weighed in glory. May we be patient when things are not as they should be, as we wait for the day when you turn the tables. And may all the glory now and throughout our lives be given to the one who deserves it, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.